This is our final Sunday at the AU Hotel, but this is our final gathering in this room, which is incredibly bittersweet for me and my wife, Courtney, because not only has this been the closest thing that our church has had to a home over the course of the past three years, but this is actually the first room that my wife and I looked at when we came to Auburn with the intention of maybe starting a church in March of 2014. The first time we came to Auburn, it was, are we moving here? Are we starting a church here? It wasn't, oh, let's go roll tumors or let's go do all the typical things that you do when you visit Auburn. It was like, come church or no church. And it was a Sunday where we did have a prayer night, probably the most important one in the beginning that we had at Ace Hardware. But we attended a church in Auburn that morning just to see what it was like to actually go to a church in Auburn. And then we were driving around downtown and asking the question, if we did start a church here, where would we meet? And you are sitting in the first room that we walked in. And it's amazing because I feel like it was yesterday, we're standing at the back of that room and I said to Courtney, can you just see people coming in and out of this room all day on Sundays encountering God? And many of you were here during this season this past fall where we would be doing five services here all day long. And I'm just here to tell you that Sometimes when God gives you a dream in a moment, it feels and looks a lot different when he delivers it in reality. Like you're actually walking in the dream and you're going, this is a lot different and harder and less romantic than I thought it was going to be. But it's awesome. By the way, I'm doing a series in September when we go into Airport Road about the life of Joseph who had a dream that sounded a lot better when he was younger than when he actually received it. So don't miss that series. I've got that series in my back pocket. I'm so excited. Oh, do not miss church, ever. Um, But definitely not September. But even now, I've got something good to say. I just wanted to tell some people that you're sitting in a moment that was prayed over for a long time. And we're, we're about to close out our final moments in this home away from home. And I want it to end with the name of Jesus being lifted up. But I want people to encounter God. This room is not special because it has red seats and it's in a hotel. This room is special because people have met Jesus here, hundreds of people. We asked uh, a girl on our team to pray this morning. I was handing her the microphone before the 8.15 a.m. gathering, and I was like, you came to know Jesus in this room, didn't you? And she was like, yes, right back there. It's just it's crazy what God has done, and I want him to be faithful uh, to continue to write a story here. The cool thing about this room is that there's another church, Church of the Highlands, is starting a campus that's going to be meeting in this room. So even as we leave, the name of Jesus will still be lifted high here. And that's exciting. And then as we leave, I thought, what, what do we want like the final legacy of this room to be? And I was like, well, it's as good a time as ever to preach the greatest sermon I have ever preached. And so I want to end this room. I love this room. We've had dreams about this room. We've had moments in this room. And I just believe God may have saved the best for last. I think God can surprise us what he's about to do over the next few minutes. Three years ago when we moved into this room, and that's a loose term because we've met everywhere while being this room. This room's been kind of like a home. Uh, I did a series called Here and Now where I talked about all these Old Testament characters who had these encounters with God, guys like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Samuel. And I talked about how one moment, one moment encountering God can change everything. And I want to do something similar with a little bit of a twist over the next three weeks. I am going to talk about three different Old Testament characters. We are going to experience the power and the presence of God preached through the word of God in the Old Testament. But I'm not calling it here and now. I want to call it even now. And I believe what God wants to say over our church in this season is that even now he has something new. He has something better. And he has a dream available for us to step into the reality of right here and right now. If you come to our church for any given amount of time, you'll hear us talk about the urgency of the now. We talk about now. Now's a big moment because now is the only moment where God can transform your life forever. And every Sunday, you'll hear some sort of a version of me trying to eliminate the shame from your past and trying to get you to release the worry about your future. Because I believe the main thing compromising somebody from encountering God 
compromising somebody's ability to encounter God in the here and now is that we're so ashamed of where we've been and we wish we could go back and change it and we wish we could go back and rewrite it and we wish if we could make that different, this moment would be different. But that's a lie because you're never gonna be able to go back to there and then. All you have is here and now. And so I'm like, release that shame. God's not expecting you to rewrite the whole thing. He's expecting you to be available right now. So we gotta release the past, but we also gotta let go of our control, perceived control over the future. I've met more Christians who do not hear the voice of God in the present because they are spending so much time freaking out about the future. And I want to go, listen, did you know that your future is not written by your anxiousness right now? It's written by your decisions right now. And if you make choices today to encounter God, you don't have to worry about the future because God will be writing the future in your heart and life today. There's nothing to freak out about here and now. We got to be available. So we put a heavy amount of weight on moments. That's why the sermon is intense. That's why at the end of every sermon, there's usually a call to, hey, your life could be changing forever right here and right now. And if you're coming for a while, you're like, man, every Sunday is so intense. And every Sunday, it feels like this could be the do or die moment. And I'm like, it is. And even if it's not yours, it's somebody else's. There's a weight to what God is doing in the here and now, but I believe the message is about to shift at ACC to two words called even now. And we're about to have the most fun Bible drill of all time. If you have your Bible, hold it up, hold it up, hold it up, hold it up. And if you are an expert Christian, turn with me without looking in your table of contents to the book of Joel. The book of Joel. Anybody want to try? Anybody want to go for it and be bold? Oh, I see a guy in the back who's like, please, Joel. Uh, I know exactly where that is. Joel is a short book in the Old Testament of your Bible. Sort the end of the Old Testament. Don't get lost. Be over in Jonah. Be like trying to fool the person next to you by covering the N, the A, and the H. Like be fine, Joel. If you have to look at the table of contents, it is okay. Joel is what is called a minor prophet. And the Bible is loaded with stories that are written by many different authors in different situations as different genres. So a lot of people don't understand that the Bible is not just a historical narrative. Some of the books are historical narratives like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. But when you read through the Old Testament, you get to books like Psalms and Proverbs. Those are what is called poetic books. But then you get to the end of the Old Testament and it's the prophets. The major prophets are guys like Isaiah and Jeremiah. They're not more important than the minor prophets. They're just more long-winded. They're like your pastor. They like to talk. They're just like, I got 50 chapters of judgment, and I've got to say it. And so Isaiah and Jeremiah, kind of the, the, the major guys. But then there's these minor prophets. Remember, not less important. Guys like Joel, guys like Micah, Obadiah, Jonah is one of them. And then you, you arrive at this little book of Joel, and the, there is little to nothing to be known about Joel. Most of the prophets, we know what their family was like. We know what their background was like. We got a little bit of historical information. We don't even know when Joel lived in a 500-year period. Like, there's debate among scholars. Was he pre-Babylonian exile? Was he post? And, and when, there's, when there's facts like that that are up for grabs, I don't think God does that by accident. When there's confusion about a particular book that's in the canon of Scripture, it just means God doesn't want you to focus on that. So when people are like, well, who wrote Hebrews? we got to figure it out. Maybe we should read Hebrews and apply it to our lives more than we try to figure out who the author is. Um, but when God creates kind of questions like that, it's because he doesn't want you focused on it. We don't know anything about Joel. We don't know who his family was. We don't know anything about the kind of dad, if he was a dad. Like, we don't know anything about it. We don't know when he lived. We don't know what the situation was like. We just know he was a prophet in Israel which is really simple to figure out. If you need a summary of the Old Testament, here it is. God chose a people, Israel, to be his chosen people on planet Earth. Like his nation to reflect his glory in the world. And basically the Old Testament is the up and down roller coaster ride that is them trying to obey God and failing and suffering the consequences for it and learning their lesson and coming back to God and experiencing his blessing only to become self-sufficient once again and do their own thing once again until things get so bad that they're so desperate that they got to call on the God of their forefathers again. And then they return to God for a little while because the prophets are like, if we don't return to God, this is going to get really bad. So they come back to God and then they become self-sufficient again, and then things get really, really bad, and then things get better, and things get really bad. And, and when you're reading the Old Testament, you're literally like, what is wrong with you guys? Like, why won't you understand? Things get better when you align your life with what God says. Why can't you figure it out? And then you come to understand that the Old Testament looks a lot like your life. 
It's basically the story of the people of God who try to follow God in their own strength. So the reason why the Old Testament is this collection of stories where the people can never figure it out enough is because I believe God didn't send Jesus at the beginning because he wanted us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that no matter how many chances we get, we will fail. No matter how many opportunities, no matter how many blessings, no matter how clear he makes it, that if you follow me, it's going to go well for you. If you do your own thing, it's going to get worse. No matter how many times we learn that lesson, it's not enough. So he had to come and follow the law for us, and he had to die in our place so that there would be a sacrifice for sins. The gospel says you couldn't do it. God did it for you. But in places like Joel, it's a place where the people are at an all-time low point. They've been disobedient, and not like disobedient for a little while, disobedient for multiple generations, disobedient in ways that would disgust you if I told you some of the things that they were doing. We're not talking about, oh, they were mean to their parents. We're talking about serving other gods. We're talking about prostitution. We're talking about child sacrifices. Like We're talking about really bad stuff happening. And so Joel shows up, and he says, listen, you know that locust plague that just hit our land? We don't know when exactly this happened, but locusts were eating up all the crops and grain and stuff. And he says, that's actually not just a random disaster. That's God judging us, and he's coming after us. I'll spare you from reading Joel chapter 1 or the beginning of Joel chapter 2. It's God coming after Israel, and I'll summarize it in Joel chapter 2, verse 11. If you're in Joel, Joel chapter 2, verse 11. If you're there, say, I'm there. Here we go. It's going to freak you out. The Lord, aren't you excited? The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number, and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? When you read the Old Testament, especially when you read the prophetic books, I think there's a tendency for us to read stuff like this and go, God is like angry and spiteful in the Old Testament. I don't know how to relate and I don't really know how this speaks to my life. Like God is the head of an army. You've got to do your research and you've got to come to understand that in the Old Testament, when the Hebrew people would talk about the day of the Lord, this was something they talked about all the time. The day of the Lord was supposed to be the day that God was going to exercise judgment against Israel's enemies. So when they talked about the day of the Lord, they were like, yes, God's going to pour out wrath and he's going to wipe out those people that are against us. He's going to knock them out and we're going to praise him and it's going to be awesome. And Joel's like, hey, the day of the Lord's here. He's leading his army, his heavenly army, and his enemy is you. Like he's coming after you. The people of God, this was as far from anything that they ever wanted to see happen as possible. You are the one who God is coming to judge. And if you read Joel 1 and you read the beginning of Joel 2, you would be like, man, this is the most hopeless situation I have ever seen. God is coming after you. He's going to wipe you out. If the Lord is coming after you, the outcome is going to be dreadful. Who can stand if they stand as an enemy of God? And the very next verse is one of the most unlikely turnarounds. It's almost like on a dime, everything shifts. And it's where we got the title of this series. Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. If you have a Bible in front of you, I want you to circle, I want you to star, I want you to highlight, I want you to hashtag even now. Even now. Those words from God mean the way things are are not final in my eyes. That's what that means. God says, even now. He could have said, here and now. There's a lot of moments in the Bible where God says, now. Now is the day of salvation. Now, like now is your moment. But God says, even now. When you say even now, it's an implication that you understand there is baggage to now. God says, even now, even though I know about all of that, even though I'm familiar about 
everything that you've done and every place that you've been, I am saying that even now, the space that you find yourself is not final in my eyes. The story is still being written, and it will be written by your response. Notice that. It's all about what the people will do in response to what they're being told. If you're, if you're like a, a, a Bible nerd like I am, you need to know this term. This is what is called prophetic contingency. Prophetic contingency. It means that the purpose of a prophecy is to warn the people to change, not to predict the future. So when you hear the word prophecy, you kind of think of like a psychic. Think of somebody who can go, oh, this is going to happen in the future. Here's the thing, though. A a, a prophecy is not valuable on the basis of whether or not it comes true. It's valuable on the basis of whether or not the people respond. So like Jonah, remember the story of Jonah? All the new believers in the room, you should check this one out. We have a lot of people who come to know Jesus in our church and they've never read the Bible before. And I love going, you heard about Jonah? And they're like, there's something about a fish? I was like, you're going to think Christianity's interesting in just one second because he lived there. And uh, yes, Jonah was preaching to the people of Nineveh and he said, hey, in 40 days, this city's going to be destroyed. The day of judgment is here. God is coming to wipe you guys out. Well, 40 days later, if you read the story, Nineveh wasn't destroyed. So does that make Jonah a false prophet? No. It means his prophecy had the intended effect. The intention of a prophecy is, hey, this is what is coming your way if you don't do something. This is what's on the way. So, so when you think prophecy, don't think, ooh, predict the future. Think this is a warning from heaven of God going, you're so far gone that this is what is about to happen to you, but you need to know that even now, even when you're the furthest you have ever been away from me, the story is not over, the story is not done, you still have an opportunity to step into something I have for you. And if you need a way to summarize that in one statement, it would be this. Every day is a new opportunity, a brand new opportunity for you to step into the life Jesus died for you to live. This is Christianity. Every single morning that you wake up, the voice of God says over your life and my life, even now. See, we don't believe that Jesus simply died for you to have eternal fire insurance. You pray to prayer. I don't got to go to hell. I get to go to heaven. It's awesome. No, no, no. Jesus' sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection was to give you eternal life in heaven. It was also to give you the fullness of life today. And there's a life that Jesus is going, I got this life on the other side of a step. And if you take the step, you've got an opportunity to step into all I have for you. But God's even now from heaven is always contingent on your response. God says, even now, he puts it on the people. So God's message to you today, I believe there's someone so specific who God wants to say, even you, even today. Like God wants to say, I know about this weekend. I know about last night. I know about a few hours ago. And I'm still saying, even now, even today, even you. This is scandalous grace. This is God going, I'm not finished with you. This is God going, you still have an opportunity to step in to something new. But it's not simply a message of emotional inspiration and me telling you God is not finished with you yet. I could preach that message all day long. Even now, as long as it is called today. What does Hebrews say? Do not harden your hearts if you hear the voice of God. But then he says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Now this is huge, this is so huge. Can we put those verses back on the screen, that that first set of verses? See, he says, even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Remember when I told you Israel kept going through that back and forth progression, that up and down roller coaster ride? What they would do when they returned to the Lord was do all these religious things. They would have a festival and they would fast and they would weep and, and they would do things like tear their garments. Now, before you're like, whoa, we're not going to do that, are we? No. Um, but, but what it was is it was an outward symbol of what was hopefully happening to them eternally. You're supposed to tear your garments as a symbol of this is how sorry I am for my sin. This is how much I wish I would have done this differently. It was a, if you got bad news, like about a family member who passed away, you would, you would tear your garments of like, man, I am sorrowful. I am, I, I, I'm not in a good place. It was acknowledging that. What the people of God got good at doing is they got good at doing the external things without feeling the internal reality. They got good at singing the songs and lifting their hands and nothing really changing on the inside. 
doesn't sound familiar. They got, they got really good at going religious, and so this is the only moment in the Bible where this phrase is used. Rend your heart, not your garments. The word rend means to tear or break. God goes, listen, more than I want your spiritual show, more than I want you to fast, more than I want you to do 10 steps to a better life, here's what I want. I want your heart to be broken for your sin. I want you to actually feel the weight of what you have done, and I want you to feel it long enough for me to come and meet you there. Because what does it say? It says God is what? He is slow to anger and abounding in love. You know that's the most common description of God in the Old Testament? Do you think of Old Testament God? He's like, he's like mean, and then Jesus comes, and then he becomes nice. No, he's always been slow to anger, abounding in love, patient, rewarding the obedience of one to a thousand generations, but punishing the disobedience of one to the third and fourth generation. Think about that. One person with a heart that's receptive to God, God blesses that family for a thousand generations. And then the pattern of sin, only punished for three to four. Our God is so merciful. He's so good. But listen, your even now from God will not catapult you into the life Jesus died for you to live if you do not have a softened heart. Talking about the condition of your heart. The Bible talks about two hearts. A heart that's hardened and a heart that's softened. When it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that's a heart that doesn't care how disobedient they are to God. That's a heart that can no longer be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. That's a heart that has decided to go his or her own way. And suddenly, even though God is speaking, he's not getting through. And what does scripture say about a hardened heart? You need to read Ezekiel. God says, I will put a new heart in them. So what you need God to do, you're like, why would I rend my heart? Why would I break my heart? Like, God doesn't want that. And what he wants to do is for you to put your heart in a position where he can take out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. David said, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit to sustain me. What you need God to do is to give you a brand new heart that's once again sensitive to what he's saying, that's once again receptive to him. And then here's what happens. This is so good. If you've tuned me out the whole time, what I'm about to say is so good, and it is from heaven, and I believe it could help you reframe the way you think about Jesus for the rest of your life. Here's what will happen to you. You need to read this. You might need to write this down. A softened heart to the love of God. God creates a receptive life to the blessing of God. A softened heart to the love of God creates a receptive life to the blessing of God. Now, when I throw the word blessing on the screen, I always get nervous because I know the theological police are out and everybody's wary. Is this prosperity preaching? Is this, is it, when you say blessing, you're saying God wants to bless me? Yes, I'm saying God wants to bless you. This is just the Bible. The problem is in the church, we've kind of got two extremes. You either have, have a place where all you do is talk about blessing, and usually that blessing is financial and material, and it's blessing, blessing, blessing. But then the other extreme of that is that all you talk about is suffering. You're like, life is hard. Don't believe them. It's actually difficult. And we all get together and be depressed, or we all get together with false hope. Where God wants us to live is in the middle of the tension where you go, no, life is hard, and you will suffer. Same time, God is your heavenly Father. He wants to bless you. And when God wants to bless you, it's so much better than any kind of financial material provision. It's a heavenly provision that says, this is the life you were created for. God wants to give you that. God is, God is dreaming of giving you a new dream. He is dreaming of opening your eyes to all that he has for you. But you, you can't get your heart into a position that's receptive of that blessing until your heart is softened to his voice. And so I don't know if you noticed this about the passage from Joel 2. Did you notice that picture of the heavenly army that was coming after Israel? It's like God in a chariot with heavenly armies about to attack his own people. And then it says, at the end of it, it says, who knows? If you, if you rend your heart, who knows? He may turn and leave a blessing behind. That means, and that's what happens, that God's going to, coming at you with judgment, turns his chariot and goes, Hey, I'm locked and loaded with provision. I got, I got drinks. I got food. I got stuff. I got, I got everything. Here you go. Here you go. Hey, you guys know that that's the, that's the story of the gospel? Do you know in the Bible who your enemy is because of your sin? It's not Satan. It's God. Because of sin, 
your worst enemy, separated from God, the wages of sin is death. God's your enemy. And the only way for him to go from being at the head of an army that's coming to punish you, and you might go, what? What did I do? Sin lives on the inside of you. It's more than an action. It's a condition. You're separated from God because of sin. Our sin has defamed his glory. It's, it's demoralized his original intention. We distort his perfect ways. He has no choice but to obliterate us forever. That's hell. And what Jesus does is he stands in the gap between God's army and us in our sin and says, unleash on me what they deserve. And when God takes out his wrath on Jesus, I'm sorry, some of you need to know this, Roman soldiers did not kill Jesus. Satan did not kill Jesus. Jesus laid down his life and your heavenly father killed Jesus. Took out his wrath on him on the cross. And so now, God goes, this is so beautiful. He goes from being your enemy coming against you, aimed with wrath toward you, to turning the chariot around and going, your sin doesn't count against you anymore. You're right with me. Jesus became our sin. We became God's sons and daughters. That he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What does righteousness mean? To be made right with God. And so what did God do? Turn the chariot around and said, okay, well, I was, I was on the way to destroy you, but now all I want to do is overwhelm your heart with blessing and love and provision and freedom, and I'll carry you through your suffering, and I'll walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. I will be your good shepherd. I will be your resurrection. I will be the bread of life. I will provide. I'm going to be with you every single step of the way. This is our story. God going, even now, all it takes for the judgment coming your way to turn into mercy, to turn into blessing, is a broken heart. That's all it takes. If your heart is softened enough to still hear the voice of God and not respond with rebellion, but respond with humility, God can change everything right here, right now, today. Even now. And the message of even now ultimately is contingent on if you learn how to rend your heart before God. Now, this is where I'll, I'll bring you back up for air for a second. I, was, I thought long and hard about this sermon. I, I, th- I was going to do three points about how to rend your heart. Like, it's like, man, l- let your heart be broken before the Lord. I think, okay, how do I do that? So I had three points. I think they were good. How do you rend your heart before God? You ask, you feel, and you turn. If your heart's not softened before God, I think all it takes is asking him, God, give me a softened heart. That's why David said, create in me a pure heart. What if you ask God for the thing you want? He'll probably deliver it. He's a good father. So say, God, I don't feel you, and I don't feel sorry for what I did, but I want to. I want to be sensitive to you again. Feel is number two. So too many times we we don't connect emotion to what we did because sin has this terrible aftertaste called numbness. That's such a good line. Sin has an aftertaste called numbness. When you sin... Ultimately, what happens over time is you choose rebellion over and over again. Now, your heart gets covered with the inability to hear. So God could be speaking. You're just not discerning any of it. And I'm not, I'm not sorry. I still believe I'm right. It takes you further and further and further into sin to where God could be saying all the things he wants in the world, but you're not feeling it. And so what you need to do is try to connect your sin to the sacrifice of the cross. When I sin against God and I don't immediately remember what that cost Jesus, I'll end up thinking it's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. And when you taste how big of a deal it is, you'll feel it. But too many of us wait to feel it until we turn around. So that was going to be point number three, turn. We try to wait till we feel it to start obeying God, not realizing that sometimes it takes turning and starting to obey God before you feel it that creates the feeling. So now my heart's not broken. I'm going to obey him until it becomes broken. I've found in my life when I drift from God, it's not necessarily a one-shot moment where he makes me so sorrowful for sin. I'll start obeying him again and then go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I ever lived that way. That's how you live a life with a broken heart. But even though I just preached it, that's not my sermon. I don't want to tell you how to rend your heart. I want to tell you why you should do it. I believe God is saying even now from heaven And the stakes of whether or not you receive the word that is being preached to you today are so high, if I could just give you a little bit of a vision of it, you would feel so heavy on the inside. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you why. Could you look at the person next to you and say, even now, even now, even now, even now. 
This is what I believe God will do if you will soften your heart. Number one, I believe God reconcile broken relationships. Reconcile broken relationships because a softened heart toward God creates a humble heart toward people. There's people in this room who you walked in here not thinking about this, but you're angry with someone in your life right now. Some of you have relational baggage with your parents, with your siblings, with old friends, and it's caused a brokenness to a relationship that is hurting you so bad from the inside that you stuffed it and you've numbed yourself to it. The, the bad thing about doing that is that we only really get hurt on the inside in relationships that we truly care about. It doesn't hurt us to have a broken relationship with somebody that we barely knew. It hurts us to experience a relational separation and go, man, I, I wish I could make up the ground that's here. Here's the key to relational health, a softened heart toward God. Because it is impossible for you and I to hear that message of the gospel that we were enemies of God and he turned the chariot around and threw blessings our way. You can't taste that and then look at somebody else and still need to be right. And a big problem at ACC is that a lot of people are coming here and developing a relationship with God and they're getting healthy. Like your marriage is getting healthy. Your life's getting better because God blesses a softened heart. The problem with that is the people who hurt you aren't here. And they're not getting healthy. They're getting worse. And what you've grown to believe over time is that your health and your relationship with God creates an IOU between you and them. But I'm 30 years old and I am telling you, this is, this is the most true relational thing I can ever say from our stage. I legitimately believe God does not care who is right. He does not care. If it was about who is right, you would never be right with God. And God is not policing your relationships today going, okay, who did this and who needs to apologize for what and how do we make this right? He's waiting for somebody to become humble enough to go, I don't care. I just want this to be mended. And so I found, I got people in my life who have wronged me. I have found I'm internally waiting for the day where they are sorry enough for this for, to make sense, for this reconciliation to make sense. That's not what God does. God makes you soft enough before him to where you can take ownership for the .0001% of what you did, even if 99.9% .9 of it was them. That's what he does. And so you're like, well, I, don't, I barely have anything I can take ownership for. Okay, you can take ownership for not creating a bridge sooner with your heart that's been made right and healthy before God. And if you come to somebody with a heart that's been in the presence of God and soften before him and go, I, I care more about us getting this right than me being right, you have aligned your heart with the heart of God. An encounter with God always has the ultimate effect on our relationships, not necessarily our calling. <sighs> just, just felt the weight of that. Our one-on-one -on -one encounters with God have more to do with their impact on our relationships than they do our calling. Here's what I mean. Our worship pastor, Matt Cole, and he didn't know this, I didn't know this, but I've, I'm sharing this story for the third time today, and I'm, I'm going for it because I think it's so cool. Uh, him and his wife just came back from a marriage retreat in Northern California. While our staff team is back here in Auburn in hard hats trying to get a building ready, he's over there zip lining in California with his wife vacationing, it's fine. And uh, I'm just kidding. And I've never worn a hard hat. So some of you know me well. You're like, you wearing a hard hat? This is not going to happen ever. Maybe when we break ground on Hamilton Road, I'll put on a hard hat. But I'll hand the shovel to David or somebody else who knows what they're doing with a shovel. Um, or that, what's that? Anyway. anyway. <laughs> what am I talking about? Okay, he's at the marriage retreat. He comes back and he tells me, Miles, like, God, God did something to me on the inside being out there. Your deepest wounds usually have something to do with your family of origin. And so I'll, I'll spare the story and let him share it with you one day. But God touched an area in Matt's life that was very sensitive and wounded and hurting. And he healed some things. Well, since Matt has gotten back from the marriage retreat, what happened there has changed nothing about the way he leads us in worship. It's still awesome. 
He's always been awesome. He's still awesome. Didn't make him better or worse. What it did is it, it changes, and I've watched it, it changed the way he talks to people. His heart has been softened before God, and I'm watching him go about relationships and phone calls and conversations with his wife differently, all because God touched a place in his heart. What you don't realize is that the people closest to you need you closest to Jesus. And you, you create a position of relational health for the people around you by being receptive to the voice of God in the here and now. That's the way. And so you might be hearing this message today and God going, even now, even now, and you're like, I don't care. Here's who you're hurting, everyone around you. And the healing comes on the other side of going, okay, if God's saying even now to me, I can say even now to them. Now that doesn't mean that you don't have boundaries. That doesn't mean that you continue in a relationship that's toxic and hurtful toward you. Do not hear me, especially girls in the room who need the troubled guy to make you feel like you're, no, no, no. I did not just give you a reason to re-pursue that. God closed that door. It is closed. It's closed for good. Even now, it's closed. That's good. That's only number one. I got to sprint. Number two is this. If you hear God say, even now, he's going to reconcile broken relationships. This is what's at stake. This is why. He's going to restore wasted years. Restore wasted years. I love that what God is doing in this church has been aimed at youthfulness, but redeeming of wastefulness. We have a lot of young people at this church. If you don't believe me, next week at 10 a.m., look around. If you've never been to ACC in late August, I'm, I'm nervous for you next Sunday. You really don't know. You think you know. You don't know what's going to happen next Sunday. Just watch out. But what I've watched God do at ACC is, is draw this generation of people who are watching God redeem and restore things that they thought were wasted and gone. So much so that when I preach this point at the 8.15 a.m. service, we have a row of senior citizens who sit on the back row at our first service every Sunday. It was a woman who was amening me and literally lifting her cane. Like, I can't stand up and amen that, but if I could, I would. Amen. Here's what God is doing at ACC. God is giving people an opportunity to understand that what you wasted in the past can be multiplied in the present. When God would bring Israel back from a season of disobedience, he would say, I'm coming to restore your wasted years. What that means is the opportunities that you should have taken, the years that you should have been obedient with whatever you have left, God can exponentially increase the results of that time so much so that it'll be more than if you had been obedient the entire time. That's grace. And so what God's doing is people in our church are in their 90s. And they're going, he is, he's not making up for everything that happened. He's exponentially increasing. And the thing I want to tell some of you, especially some of you who think like, man, every time I come here, the sermon is so aimed at like new beginnings and dreams and all these things that like a 30-year-old is thinking about. Well, I'm 30. So that's part of it. Yes, I sound like a 30-year-old. But the other part of it is, I believe when God is finished with your story, he makes that overwhelmingly clear. He lets you die. You are not finished if you are still breathing. And if you're still breathing, God says, even now, even now I have the capacity to multiply every single opportunity that you wish you can get back. And here's the truth. You'll never be able to rewind the clock and go back to when they were two. You'll never be able to go back and make up for all those opportunities where you should have prayed with your wife and you should have been intentional and you should have had all these moments and you should have said yes to that opportunity and you should have and you should have and you should have. But what God wants to do with should today is shut it down and say, even now, you can bury your should because even now I've got more in this moment and you can take the years that you wasted doing all of that and I can take a little bit and do a lot. I did this thing one time where I took a few fish and a few loaves and it should have fed about five people and it fed 5,000 and it was actually more like like 10 or 15,000, but we didn't count women and children. But I can take a little bit and make it go a long way. If you got a little bit of time, namely 24 hours, God can restore and redeem your wasted years. And I believe that's a powerful thing he's doing in our church. It's good. I got more. Last sermon ever in the AU Hotel. Reconcile broken relationships even now. Restore wasted years even now. If you receive this word, you know what else he wants to do? He wants to revive crushed dreams. 
revive crushed dreams. I haven't even told you the best part about Joel chapter 2. Some of the Bible experts in the room, you know where this is going. I said, turn with me to Joel, Joel 2. And if you know the Bible well, you know that's like the most important prophecy from the Old Testament about the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but that's not the section I read. I just read you the even now section. There's a section after that section where God gets carried away with his own prophecy and just starts saying stuff. And he's like, okay, yeah, 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 I'm gonna, I'm gonna even now, I'm gonna restore all your, yeah, 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 I'm gonna bless you, I'm gonna bless you. Later, I'm gonna pour out my Holy Spirit. And a follow-up text for this sermon, you need to read Acts 2 this week, the story of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit goes out, and all these believers, they didn't even know how this was going to work. They start speaking languages that they didn't know how to speak. And people are hearing the gospel. They're hearing the good news about Jesus in their own language. And they're like, how are you guys doing this? How are you able to speak languages you don't know how to speak? Oh, you're, they go, you're, you're drunk. You're just, like, saying gibberish. Do you know what Peter says in response to them? This is so funny. The Bible's hilarious. He says, we're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. He literally says that. He's like, if it was 9 p.m., like, yeah, it might be. But, I, I mean, we're good. At not, these, remember, these are new believers. They hadn't been fully discipled yet. And so, and, and so Peter's like, no, 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 no. We're not just saying gibberish. We're not drunk. This is what the prophet Joel said. And he quotes Joel 2. This is the end of the prophecy that I read. You ready? Verse 28. Afterward, this is God talking, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. God goes, I'm not just going to be the God over a nation. My spirit is going to inhabit my sons and daughters. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. What, what do I need to get from that? Oh, it's, it's male and female. I love that. The prophetic is not just a gifting given to men, given to everybody. We don't believe in a church that's just led by men. We do this together. And we do believe that there are specific offices for men to take and for women to take. But as far as spiritual gifts are concerned, we are not one of those churches that goes, oh, let's just keep this in a room with the men who are going to tell us the right way to go. No, it's everybody, sons and daughters, everybody included. But then there's this one. Your old men will dream dreams. Who's the least likely person to walk into ACC carrying a dream in their heart? The old men. Because they've been there. They've had the missed opportunities. They've lived long enough to know what to get excited about and what not to get excited about. Your old men will dream dreams. This is a byproduct of the kingdom of God, one of the main byproducts. And I feel like what God is doing at ACC is intentionally a mixture of generations. Where the, the younger generation is instilling faith in the older, and the older is instilling wisdom in the younger. But I never want to be a church where faith is reserved for people who don't know better, and wisdom is reserved for people who have become cynical. Like, we need to be wise, we need to calm down. No, no. The older people in our room need to be the most risky people in our church because they're going to see Jesus the soonest. <laughs> I'm dead serious. Your old men will dream dreams. But when we started ACC, there was a lot of younger people, not a lot of older people. And so people would tell me, hey, stop calling this a church. Make this a college ministry. Make this like a high school and college thing. Do it for 20-somethings. Like, don't, it's not a church. And I said, no, it's a church because that's where the power is. There are promises of God for the church that are only reserved for the people of God. And God wanted his body to be multi-generational. God wanted young people to be looking at fathers and going, that's a miracle and that inspires me. So what's powerful about our gatherings, if you talk, talk to some of the younger students and ask them, why do you come here? I guarantee you the most common answer will not be preaching or music. It will be the families. People are blown away. Young people are blown away here because they're going, I want that. But you know what nobody talks about? 
And what the older couples in this church don't talk about a lot, let's talk about how much the faith of this younger generation is inspiring you and how many dreams are rising up in your heart. And we've got fathers in the room who are dreaming about leading their families, even if they've neglected it for decades and going, God might be saying even now to me. I believe today at ACC, God's got old dreams that he wants to revive. Like stuff that he said to you when you were 20 something, when you were 15 and he's going, I haven't forgot about that. When you ran away from me, you thought, oh, you thought you compromised that dream because you weren't obedient. I haven't forgotten about what I said and I can still bring it to pass because you're still breathing and I'm still in heaven and my spirit is still going out. And where the spirit blows, dreams grow. What is the spirit called in the Bible? Breath. God goes, and men go, I'm dreaming again. I'm dreaming. I forgot that that dream was even there, but I see it. I think something is going to come out of this Sunday. I was standing with a 50-year-old man after the last gathering, could barely control his words. He's crying so hard. He's like, I've been following Jesus 40 years. And as you were preaching, rend your heart, I was like, God, if you could still do it in me, do it one more time. He said, by the end of the sermon, I could barely see straight. The tears from years of regret were flowing so hard. And he's like, God did speak something over me when I was younger, and I thought it was over, and I thought it was done. But I'm going back to Alpharetta, Georgia, to watch God redeem my wasted years, reconcile my broken relationships, and oh my gosh, he's going to restore my wasted years. He's doing that. Even now. Now, this is bonus week. Since it's our last week at the AU Hotel, I had three points, and I was like, oh, I got one more. Asa, you can come up here. We're going we're gonna to play, and then we're going to get out of here. Last one. If you hear God say, even now, what's he doing? He's reconciling broken relationships. He's restoring wasted years. He's reviving crushed dreams. Lastly, redeem future legacy. Redeem future legacy. God is not just a God who can rewrite the past in a moment. He can use this moment in your life to rewrite what you are remembered for in the future. When you hear the word legacy, legacy is something you leave behind. So some of you who graduated high school, you know that there's stuff the people who knew you in high school think of the moment they hear your name. Some of you, college, the same. You move on from one season, you leave what's called a legacy. We're moving on from this room, but we don't, feel like we're just leaving. We've left something here. Legacy. What God can do if he gets a hold of a moment with an even now type message is he can take what would have been said about you and replace it with something new and better. And he only needs a few seconds. Watch. When I say, think in your head about the thief that was crucified next to Jesus, what did you just think of? Now, there, were, there were two thieves that were crucified next to Jesus. Luke chapter 23, one of them said, hey, get us down from here. And another said, we deserve to be here. Will you remember me in your kingdom? Now, the only difference between those two guys was the condition of their hearts. One had a hardened heart and one had a broken heart. The thief that was crucified next to Jesus had a few breaths left of life. And we literally don't have any record of him ever doing anything good or productive or meaningful. And his forever legacy is the guy who got into the kingdom of God in the moment of our redemption. His legacy is one of the most powerful legacies that could possibly exist. Jesus, if it's still on the table, if I'm still available, and this is amazing because it says, there's one translation that says, Jesus turned and looked at him. And the first word he said was today. I don't... I don't know how I'm even still standing here with the opportunity to get to say something about God because of some of the stuff that I carry and continue to carry. Like the fact that he keeps looking at me and going, today, I've got more. I'm I'm dumbfounded personally to have an answer to that. But to think of Jesus loaded with blood and scars 
looking off and saying, today, how do you, how would that end? You will be with me in paradise. The story of your life is always written with one word as the focus, today. And today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, rend your heart. And what God can do is change what you're remembered for forever. I believe he's redefining legacies in this room and he's rewriting the legacy of our church into the future. I believe God says, even now, ACC, it's been five years. Think about five years, you're like, oh, that's a pretty awesome five years. I believe God says today, those five years are literally my introduction to the introduction. Even now, if you stay broken before me, if you stay desperate before me, if you stay humble before me, I'm going to exponentially increase your legacy. Not just what you're known for in this world, but your legacy in heaven. That's called souls. We are... (laughs) We are a part of God writing the future of heaven in our current day. If you believe it, bring someone with you next Sunday. Close your notes. Let's stand up all over this place. This is our last time worshiping together in this space. I want to make this moment count. We talked for a while about what we wanted this moment to look like, and we landed on a song that we've sang several times. It's called, Oh, Come to the Altar. And it's a song about the love of a father who's open and available for his children. Here's what I want to say today. God's arms are open wide, but his embrace of you is dependent on whether or not you run to him. Don't be the person who sits back today. Let's not waste these last few breaths that we have in this space. Let's go all out. Matt, if you want to get crazy and just do them all, I think they're in it. I think you haven't been standing up here, but they are in it. Look, he's so softened toward people now. I love this guy. Love him. And we pray for you. Would you bow your heads? Father God, I've loved every moment in this room, but none more than this one. Because it's here. You're moving in people's lives. God, I pray that in these last moments that we have, as we praise your name, that you would be restoring wasted years, that you would be reconciling broken relationships, that you would be reviving dreams, rewriting stories. In fact, if you're here right now and one of those four things is where you're living today, like God is speaking that over your life, would you just lift your hand right where you are? I wanna pray for you. Would you just lift your hand? That's me. Father God, you know this. You know this is me right now. I pray that the spirit of God would do in one moment what we couldn't do with a lifetime. Would you breathe again? Would you move again? Would you do the thing that you do, which is say, even now, as bad as it's gotten, as far as you've run, The offer still stands. You're still breathing, and I'm still offering. I love you. We receive that today. We sing to you today in Jesus' name.